everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Anities, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I mean, we're going to be talking about the Playboy Mansion show today, so this is going to be a fun one. Uh, well, it'll be fun. I don't know how good it will be uh, as far as the... I, I used the fun on purpose. I, I didn't say good. I said fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's not the great, the most high quality uh, Strike Force event that you'll ever come across, but we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but we do want to get into the fallout from Shamrock versus Baroni, which was our last event episode that we covered. Uh, as we discussed at the end of that, the, our, our very last show that we covered with them was uh, Phil Baroni and Carter Williams testing positive. Uh, Baroni for steroids and Williams for cocaine. Baroni got suspended for a year, was fined $2,500, and Williams got six months and a $1,000 fine. Uh, and Frank Shamrock was now the very first Strike Force middleweight champion, but with his knee injuries, he wouldn't compete again for about nine months. And I, I do want to give you a quick plug. Uh, if you haven't yet, our, our very last episode before this one was an interview with Frank, and he talks about Baroni testing positive for steroids. He talks about uh, preparing for that fight, tearing his knee to shreds after being taken down by Sokaju while training with, with Team Quest, and how he had to mentally... Uh, kind of strengthen himself and spiritually strengthen himself to, to prepare himself to be able to fight a guy that could really knock him out and how he had to face really his greatest fear as a fighter, which was being knocked out. And he was able to overcome all that. It's a, a very, very interesting conversation. So definitely go back into the archives and check that out. But for now, we're going to jump back into this in a, in a first strike force announced on August 4th, 2007, that the promotion would hold an MMA event at the world famous Playboy Mansion in Beverly Hills, California on September 29th, 2007. Uh, the press release all state also stated that there would be, and this is a quote, a top shelf open bar, a buffet style gourmet dinner, photo opportunities with Playboy Playmates, and a wine tasting party featuring the spirits of various gold medal wineries, <laughs> end quote. Uh, they also announced a poker tournament. So this was not just going to be a fight card. There was going to be a lot of other activities going on at the same time. We're going to talk a lot about the various people who made appearances on this show or in the crowd. This was a very unique show for a variety of reasons. It was streamed live on Yahoo Sports and according to Figure Four Weekly, and you can see a lot of this too when you watch the show, but obviously Hugh Hefner was there. Uh, apparently though, he showed up late and left early. Uh, there was, you know, lot, lots of uh, fighters were there. We'll talk about them as they sort of appear in and out of the various uh, fights later on. Bob Sapp was there. He drew lots of attention. And uh, according to Figure Four Weekly, there were a lot of people there who weren't necessarily MMA fans, but they were there to sort of see the spectacle, spectacle of the Playboy Playmates. And I think that's sort of the, the thing about this show is that it sort of felt a little more entertainment and glitzy than pure MMA-like. Yeah, and I, you know, I saw some photos because uh, I, I didn't see Bob Sapp there, so I'm, I'm interested to see where, where you saw him. But I saw some photos and... I know Ken Shamrock was there based on on the pictures that I saw, but again, I didn't see him in the crowd, which is kind of weird. I mean, if you got a, a big time name like Bob Sapp, you got a, an absolute legend like Ken Shamrock. Why not show these guys in, in the crowd? So I, you know, but there was. I'm we'll sure Frank. I'm sure Frank Shamrock had his finger on the edit button whenever Ken Shamrock. I guess came up. I, I don't know if they had reconciled at this point or not, but but there was yeah. If for it, we'll get to it in just a minute, but. 
uh, Joe Rogan was there and they didn't, and they, he did appear on camera and they didn't even call him out. So <laughs> I, I kind of felt like there was some non MMA people that were in the, uh, in the control truck or, or something. But anyway, as for the fight card itself, uh, as part of that press release, Gilbert Melendez and Josh Thompson were both announced uh, as, as scheduled to compete as well as Bobby Southworth and Daniel Pewter, though none of the, the opponents for these fighters were revealed. Then on September 9th, it was revealed that the Punk would be taking on IFL veteran Adam Lynn in a lightweight bout. Interestingly, this press release and all the others after this one before this event stated that Thompson's record was 34-2. and two. I have no idea where that comes from. Comes from He did not have any amateur MMA bouts on his – I at least don't see any on his record. He did definitely did not have 20 kickboxing bouts, so I do not understand – where that came from, and that's one of the first weird things that we're going to point out, and you'll be hearing the word weird a lot <laughs> while we talk about this. Event. It's like Thompson's at the end of his career with a 34-2 yeah, seriously, record. seriously. <laughs> uh, but we'll talk more about Adam Lynn when we get to that fight. Then the next day, September 10th, it was announced that Eugene Jackson would be taking on Joe Riggs in a middleweight bout, and Riggs had a pretty good quote in the press release. He said, quote, it's going to be a classic case of new school versus old school. I'm too talented of a fighter for Jackson to compete with me. I'm just more technical and I'm quicker and I hit harder. Everything that he's good at, I'm better, end quote. Uh, we'll be talking more about Riggs in a little bit, but it's interesting to note the press release made no mention of Eugene Jackson's recently acquired Strike Force US, U.S. middleweight title. So I think they were already, you know, kind of shelving that or just, you know, was kind of just wasn't a part of things after that point for whatever reason. Then on September 19th, the press release is uh, goes out stating that Strikeforce Light Heavyweight Champion Bobby Southworth would defend his title against Bill Mahood. Uh, that is in the title of the press release. It said that he would be defending the belt, but in the body of the release, it said it would be a non-title fight. So again, weird. That's probably one of the things one of the things where they told the publicist, "Hey, this is gonna be a title fight," and then they decided that it wasn't. Someone made a change after the fact. Uh, but but yeah, again, weird. Then the release also stated that Daniel Pewter would be taking on Richard Dalton, who was kind of a that guy was three, two, and one, not a big name at all, uh, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. And then finally on September 25th, it was announced that Gilbert Melendez would be taking on Tetsuji Kato in a non-title main event bout. Melendez had actually been waiting for his – he'd fought for Pride twice uh, in between his first strike force fight on – or I'm sorry, I believe his second strike force fight on June 9th and then uh, uh, this event. So it had been 15 months since he had fought in strike force because he had been fighting in Pride. And then once Pride had been fought by the uh, bought by the UFC, there was some confusion and some questions over various fighter contracts. Uh, and in a press release – uh, Gilbert said that he would like to fight Sean Shirk in the UFC. He talked about Jay-Z Cavalcante and K-1. So definitely was not all in on Strike Force. He just wanted to take on the best no matter what promotion that they were part, they were a part of. All right, moving on to the UFC. As uh, we've made a, a, a regular thing now, we want to let you know who the UFC champions are at the time of the Strike Force event that we are discussing. There were no changes uh, between the last uh, event, Shamrock versus Brony in this event. So Sean Shirk, still the lightweight champion, Matt Serra, Still the welterweight champion, Anderson Silva, still in the first year of his seven-year reign over the middleweight division. Quentin Rampage Jackson, still the UFC light heavyweight champion, and Randy Couture still holding the UFC heavyweight crown. The closest UFC event to this event that we're talking about tonight was UFC Knockout, which took place September 22nd, 2007 at the Honda Center in Anaheim, California. Originally, the main event was supposed to feature the UFC debut of former Pride fighting star Vanderlei Silva and about with the Iceman Chuck Liddell, which 
should stop right there and just say that at that point, you know, you may not, people may not realize just how big of a fight that was at that time. I mean, that was the guy in the light heavyweight division for pride against the guy in the light heavyweight division for the UFC. So Chuck Liddell versus Vanderlei Silva was an absolute dream match. We would get to see it eventually. And it was a great bout, although there was not a definitive finish. I mean, it, w- it went to a decision and uh, Chuck Liddell won, but it was not, you know, we were expecting a vicious knockout. It was a very entertaining fight, uh, but it didn't, you know, didn't end in a, in a KO, which I think everybody expected. However, at this event, it would end up being Liddell versus the Dean of mean Keith Jardine, one of my favorite <laughs> MMA nicknames, uh, with, with Jardine getting a split decision victory for the biggest win of his career. Uh, in the co-main event, Mauricio Shogun, who had made his UFC debut coming off of, of his pride run, and he got submitted by Forrest Griffin with only 15 seconds left in the fight. Yeah, how did that happen? I mean, I, that that is unreal. Um, I yeah. mean, Forrest Griffin was, was obviously good in that first sort of round of, of uh, people coming out of Ultimate Fighter 1, but that was an upset. I think it was the upset. It was the UFC upset of the year. It was the submission of the night. So that was a big fight. And um, I guess Hua would get his win back by TKO a few years later. So everything yep. was balanced in the world again. I guess, yeah. <laughs> uh, in addition, John Fitch got a decision win over Diego Sanchez and one-time strike force competitor Tyson Griffin beat Tiago Tavares in the fight of the night. Uh, ironically, the event was, uh, as we mentioned, subtitled Knockout. There were no knockouts <laughs> on the card. It was all decisions and submissions. Uh, but the card drew 13,770 fans for a gate of $1.985 million and a pay-per-view buy, weight, buy rate of 475000 which is which is healthy, especially for that time. So financially successful event, even if they didn't produce any of those those knockouts. All right, back to our strike force event. Uh, the weigh-ins, the weigh-ins went off without a hitch, uh, though there were several catchweight bouts on the card, which made it easier. Uh, interesting to note, Josh Thompson apparently had to cut down from 179 pounds to 155 for his bout, and he ended up weighing in at 155.5 pounds. So that is a massive weight cut. We talked about uh, the big. I think it was, it was either 22 or 24 pound uh, cut that Bobby Southworth had to do on the Ultimate Fighter. But that's a guy cutting down from a heavyweight down to light heavyweight. When you're trying to cut down 24 pounds off a you know a guy that's the 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 frame of a Josh Thompson, a guy that's under 180 pounds, and you're trying to get down to 155, and you do that in two days or whatever it was. I mean, it was it, that is just insane. So cat, well, that's off to the punk. So that was he cut that much weight in two days. Yeah, it was. It was. I, I don't remember the exact. Uh, I don't remember the the exact part of it, but yeah, he cut it down in a very very short amount of time. And I'll as we're kind of going along here, and I get a chance, I will. I'll go back and look at that and see uh, see what exactly it said there. But it was definitely not something where uh, you want to you want to be in that position at all. It, yeah, it was I mean, not it would easy. be to be because Josh Thompson is lean anyway I mean, absolutely he's, he's lean. He, unless he just put on a bunch of weight I mean the idea that you're that lean and muscular with already not a lot of body fat having to cut that much weight wow that's that's unreal yeah, and I was able to open the release. It says, uh, and this is from MMA Weekly, an interesting side note is Josh Thompson, one of the more popular fighters competing for Strike Force, in the past 24 hours, he had to cut down from 179 to make weight for the 155-pound lightweight belt, or lightweight we gotta, belt. 
So we got to ask he, him about that. Yeah, he cut point, 24 yeah. pounds in in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So that is insane. So when we have him on the show, we are definitely going to want to talk talk to him about that mm-hmm. for sure because that is just that's crazy. Uh, but in, in something that was probably a, a boon for the the promotion, the main card would be streamed for free on Yahoo Sports to to Yahoo users. Uh, at the beginning of the event, the announcer said that the this fight card would be going out to an unprecedented 500 million users because <laughs> Yahoo had that. It's like no, that's that's not how this works. You don't have 500 million people watching this this event right now. But <laughs> I, I get what they were trying to do there. Uh, there are there is some discrepancy on the amount of fans that were in attendance. I saw a thousand people paying a thousand dollars each. I also saw an attendance number of three thousand five hundred sixty nine. Uh, so I, I don't know which one it was. I lean more towards a thousand people being there because based on the, the 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 crowd that you see in the fight videos and then just the the noise. I I, I think yeah. it was about a about a thousand there. Yeah, I tried to do a little bit of research there to sort of figure out how many people you could fit in the garden area there where they have the the uh, show where they put up the cage and I don't think you can fit 3,569 people. I think it was definitely more like a thousand and, you know, maybe even a little bit more when you're watching that video, you know, um, it was, is a very strange, strange concept for me. I mean, I get, I sort of get it, but I mean, it's sort of sexist. It's sort of stereotypical. <laughs> you know, you got an MMA show, you know, and, and, and MMA is, trying to be mainstream and legit and we're a sport and we're not at like some bar- backyard brawling or bar fighting. And here they are having it at the Playboy Mansion. And so I guess there's a little bit of cross branding that's happening. Um, I don't know what the Playboy Mansion offered Strikeforce or, or what that deal was. Um, there were obviously lots of celebrities, Kendra Wilkinson, Holly Madison, Jamie Presley. I mean, these are people who would have been um, well, those were like, you know, Playboy Playmates, but, you know, Sons of Anarchy actor Chuck Zito. These are people who were popular at the time in pop culture. Uriah Faber was there. Josh Barnett. Of course, we saw Joe Rogan there with his, you know, looking entirely different than he does now. But right, by right. the way, his like dark hair. hair, scruffy beard, his nose. I mean, he just his he looks different. Totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's age, but there's something going on there. He just, you know, he just grew well, up a little he, bit. He looked like he, it was the, uh, oh, what was the, what was the scary uh, uh, show, the stunt show that he, that he hosted? Oh, oh Fear Factor. Fear yeah. Factor. So that was the Fear Factor Joe Rogan. Like he had his hair kind of comb forward a little bit and, yeah. you know, the long sideburns with kind of the beard going along with it. Yeah. It was just, that was just, that was his phase at that time. That was, that was Rogan <laughs> at the time. I mean, here's Strikeforce, and they're trying to compete with the UFC. I mean, you just read off the numbers, the gate, the incredible about, incredible amount of money the UFC made on their show at the Arrowhead Pond, and they are um, over here holding a show at the Playboy Mansion. It's sort of weird because here they are trying to break go into the mainstream, and they've had shows on Showtime, and now they're streaming Yahoo Sports. So the business side of that i felt like i was watching uh, the old awa at the showboat casino in las vegas this is probably dating you phil as much of a wrestling fan as you are you probably don't get this reference but it sort of felt like it was stagger lee marshall calling the shots and playboy buddy rose was there because it was just done on this like weird small set and it just did not scream to me importance um if i'm watching it and you referenced the 500 million or whatever they said in the announcing i mean 
That is ridiculous. I would love to know how many people actually watched the show at the time. I, I don't know if that rating exists, but you know, they had it outside and it sort of looked like a wedding reception almost. <laughs> um, and it, it, it looked, I mean, it looked right away at my wedding. It's just like tables spread out and like there's people in the middle and you know, you MMA or, you know, any sport, like you don't want to be flat or you don't want to be even below the cage. You want to have uh, seats that are, sort of, you know, uh, uh, tiered and layered and, you know, and so I don't really know if you're not kind of in the front, if you're, you know, what you're seeing, there are a lot of people standing up. So I don't want to go on too much about this, but it sort of felt like a strike force kind of weird house show. Um, and then the fights didn't really make up for it. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think it does look pretty lame and it comes across as pretty Bush league. I understand what they were trying to do and and you know it's an interesting concept but in the end yeah just not not great I, I wasn't a huge fan of it they did uh, they did draw some stars like you mentioned uh, you know of course Hugh Hefner was there actor Michael Clark Duncan was there uh, Ethan Suple and you mentioned Jamie or Suple I, I, I don't know how to say it. I say Suple just because it's like suplex like uh, oh you're doing the you're, you're pronouncing it the amateur style wrestling yes the way. amateur yes the uh, or the dean of wrestling broadcasters Gordon Soley the way he used to do it but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but uh, Ethan, we'll just call him Ethan, and Jamie Presley from My Name is Earl, you know, they were there, of course, tons of Playboy Playmates. And as I mentioned, you could see Rogan sitting behind Michael Clark Duncan, but the commentators, Frank Shamrock and Brian Weber, either they didn't know who he was or they weren't looking at their monitors because it was very clearly Rogan. I mean, it was very clear that he was right there either right behind Duncan or sitting next to him. And they didn't even mention his name. So clearly, clearly they had Vince McMahon in the air saying, yeah, don't, don't, don't acknowledge, acknowledge the competition. Acknowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, but just more weirdness. It just, it's yeah. a weird event. So, all right, well let's, let's get to the fight card itself. We're going to talk about the undercard at first. Uh, Anthony ant dog Figueroa defeated Miguel Linares via TKO due to strikes at two Oh nine of the first round. Uh, Figaro was fighting his third straight strike force event, held a record of two and one coming into the bout uh, with Linares. He had lost to feature UFC vet Chris Carriasso via decision at Shamrock versus Baroni a few months prior. Linares was two and two coming into the bout. He had lost to Jose Palacios at the Young Guns Challengers card in February of, of that year and had split two bouts on regional cards prior to the Playboy Mansion show. Uh, good feeling out process to open things up. Both fighters testing out leg and body kicks. Linares closes the distance, which turns out to be his undoing. Uh, he grabs the shorter ant dog in a clinch, attempting to throw some knees, but Figueroa responds with some really good, dirty boxing. He drops Linares with an uppercut who hits his knees as Figueroa actually knocks his opponent's mouthpiece out with some follow-up strikes. And that's all she wrote. Very impressive win for the Barrier product. And afterwards, Figueroa does the, the kind of cartwheel into a backflip that his teacher, Kung Lee, likes to do after his wins. So it was uh, definitely an impressive showing for Figueroa at 135 pounds. So good stuff there. Linares would not fight in strike force again. Uh, he would fight one more time in 2008, losing before before ending his career at two and four. Figaro would fight a few more times in, in strike force, so we'll discuss him a bit more in the future. The next fight saw Luke Stewart get the the inked master, uh, get a TKO win over Sam Liera via strikes at 3:40 of the first round. Stewart again, just this tattoo artist, very very talented, well known for that, was undefeated at three and zero, coming off a huge win over UFC veteran Jason Von Flew via punches at Shamrock versus Baroni. Uh, alongside Daniel Pewter, Stewart was a homegrown star on the rise, 
but I, I thought he was kind of taking a step down in competition and taking on Sa uh, Sam Liera. No, no disrespect to Liera. Uh, Liera, for his part, he was four and one coming into the bout, so he was more experienced than Stewart. So it did seem to be a pretty evenly ma matched bout on paper. But when you're going from a UFC veteran like Von Flew, and then you're going back to a guy at your experience level, that just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Uh, to me, but Liera in his pre-fight video package interview said he preferred stand-up, but with six months of training in jiu-jitsu, he was comfortable on the ground, <laughs> on the ground too, which just it made me kind of laugh and smirk when he said that because anybody that knows the fight game knows that six months of jiu-jitsu and you're taking that into the cage against a, a BJJ black belt like like Luke Stewart. Uh, yeah, sorry. You're come just, on, yeah. come on, Phil. Yeah. CM, Punk, CM Punk did it. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, we, look how that turned out for him. <laughs> <laughs> so this one kind of goes as you expect, but explosive start. Stewart misses a high kick. Liera lands a right hand. Uh, Stewart gets a clinch and takes Liera down. Stewart works his position and gets side mount before Liera is actually able to sweep and, and get half guard. But then Stewart sweeps right back, gets half guard of his own, then gets to full mount. They actually start trading punches. And this is where the inexperience by Liera really shines through on, on the ground because he starts trying to punch up from the bottom and you just don't see that very often. And it really is not a good idea to do that. And Stewart just keeps up the volume of punches and you can tell like it's, there's not a lot of damage being done there, but, but Liera just had no answer uh, from his back and eventually the ref steps in and stops it. Not, not really the most crowd pleasing fight, but a, another solid victory for, for Stewart. Yeah. Respect for Liera for not pulling a Conor McGregor, turning his back only to get choked out. I mean, I think that fighters in that position, that's what they do. They turn their back and they give it up and they get choked out. And so Liera at least was trying to defend himself. Now, obviously gravity is working against you when you were trying to do that. Um, he's trying to punch up and Stewart's trying to punch down and we know how that is going to work. Um, you know, he was able to hang for a little bit and, uh, you know, how, how cool would it be if he caught him, you know, yeah, sort of, knocked him out from the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we've seen that with like an up kick or something like that, but uh, we don't really see that too much with a punch. I mean, he could have tried to have done some wrist control, uh, grab one of the arms. Uh, he never was able to, to get a grip, but there wasn't really much that he could do because it's a tough thing. If you cover up and then you're just getting pummeled, but it looked, if you're in the fight, then you have opportunities there to maybe do something. Maybe the other guy gets tired out. But, um, I mean, what, what would you have done there? When you're in that position well, and you're getting pummeled, you know, if you're yeah. not doing risk control and you're not turning, you're giving up your back, what are you doing? Well, I mean, you're supposed to – I think you're either supposed to grab him and try to pull him close and see if you can get his hips and try to sweep or something. But I, if you, I think the reason you turn your back is – because you can at least get to your knees and try to pull out, you know, between their legs and, and try to, you know, get out that way. So I'm look, I'm not a fighter. I've trained jujitsu a handful of times. I, you know, I don't know, but I just, but punching from your back, you don't have any hip, you know, you, you have nothing from your hips. You got no, you know, obviously no footwork or anything like that to help build up power for the strike. So, it's just, and then you got a guy that's on top of you raining down. That's got all of that. I just, I don't see why you do that, but yeah, it's, I mean, you don't want to be in mount to be, or you don't want to be mounted to begin with, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. but uh, no, I guess unsurprisingly, Lear would not fight for strike force again, but maybe surprisingly, he's actually still active today. He holds a record of 14 and 11. Uh, he's fought a ton in King of the Cage. He's lost a current UFC competitor, Kevin Holland twice, 
but he actually beat UFC vet Paulo Tiago in his most recent bout, which took place in uh, in December of 2019. So should have retired right there. Yeah, I'm sure he's gotten better. You know, I, I, I'm sure he's gotten better. So, uh, but Stewart will be back in just a couple months in Strike Force, so we'll talk more about him as we go. Uh, in the next fight, Daniel McWilliams submitted Eddie Millis via rear naked choke at two and nine of the first round. This was kind of a weird fight. McWilliams, uh, nicknamed the animal, was two and one coming to the bout, while Millis, nicknamed the shark, was known as a kickboxer, was zero and two. Millis had actually fought two pretty name fighters in MMA before this fight. He would lost to Strikeforce vet Ronald the Machine Gun Jun in 1998, and then to Sa Japanese star Sanei Kakuda in 1999. Uh, then he fought in Muay Thai. Uh, in K1, winning three bouts over three years before leaving combat sports competition, or at least uh, didn't have anything on his on his record uh, for five years. And this strike force bout would be his return to MMA. Uh, kind of a uh, McWilliams had talked in the pre-fight. Uh, Millis did not have a pre-fight interview. McWilliams did in a pre-fight video package and said he was mostly a street brawler and you know he was working on his ground game, but really more of a street brawler. And you know, so it's kind of a weird. Weird dynamic just to begin with. They meet in the middle of the cage right away. McWilliams grabs a pretty tight guillotine choke. Millis gets out of it, eventually gets actually a takedown. He even drops back for a heel hook, which allows McWilliams to easily get mount. Millis turns his back, and McWilliams sinks in this rear naked choke, but, and he gets the tap like super quick after getting the arm under the throat. I mean, I, I don't even think he'd started squeezing yet, and <laughs> Millis, Millis tapped out. It was like he just kind of knew he was caught, and that was it. Uh, so unsurprisingly, this will be Millis's last fight on record. He ended his career at zero and three. So kind of a, kind of a weird fight. Yeah, I don't think that uh, Millis wanted to fight <laughs> at all. I, I mean, this is terrible to say because obviously he makes the walk and he did his thing. But I mean, it looked like he quit. I mean, it looked yeah. like you know, I, this is just the guy didn't even have it sunk in yet. I mean, it, even a desperate scramble. He could have made something happen, but it wasn't even sunk in yet. But I mean, based off of how much these guys are getting paid, and this is a prelim thing. I mean, who knows? Maybe he's like, I made my twenty five hundred. Yeah, know, and I, I'm out of here. I'm done. But I think that was disappointing. I think that you really want to see these guys. I mean, obviously, you don't want them to get choked out. But hey, you know, we, we want to see at least let the fight go on and see what you can do. And for the record, Millis actually made 4,000. Uh, oh, this okay. Fight, and okay. McWilliams actually only made a thousand dollars for this fight. So the winner, and there was no win bonus for either one of them. So uh, either way, they were both going to take home their, their 4k and their 1k respectively. Re respectively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so not, not, not a whole lot of money there. Uh, no, no question about it. Uh, but yeah, you, I mean, you get like you said, you got to give him the respect for coming into the cage. And McWilliams, you got to have a lot of respect for. He was also done with Strike Force after this bout. He's gone on to be quite the journeyman. He's still active today. He fought in January of 2020, so just earlier this year as we record this. Over the years, he's compiled a record of 18 and 46, fighting the likes of Syed Awad, Jamie Yeager, and Joe Daddy Stevenson. And he's currently riding a seven-fight losing streak. So hey, one thing I just figured it out: Millis saw Bob Sapp in the crowd. I was like. Hey. <laughs> I I'm, gonna do do better than that that. I'm gonna do what that guy does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One, I, man, I, I hope Sap never hears any of this because he could still, I'm sure, crush me with his bare hands. But he's, I, I have a feeling he's gonna kind of be like our ongoing uh, proverbial <laughs> punching bag as as we go. I just, I'll, I'll, I'll step in there. You know, if nothing else, you know, oh, we, you, we'll, we'll, we'll run. Yeah, 
Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. You know, we'll <laughs> just run and he'll you know. gas. Hey, I run four or five <laughs> times a week. He'll gas himself out. I now I don't go very fast, but but <laughs> as long as he's not fast, I can probably I can probably go long enough for him to tire out. So it's like a two on one too. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he can't get both of us, so one of us is going to survive either way. So. <laughs> Uh, anyways, all right, back to the back to the fight card. So then we get Dewey Cooper getting a unanimous decision victory over Adam Smith. Cooper was nicknamed the Black Cobra, a very decorated kickboxer who had competed multiple times in K1. Uh, he'd lost to both Rick and Duke Rufus, who are brothers. And Duke is actually a former client of mine. And I'm going to stop right here and talk about him just for a second because I don't know that his name will ever come up again. But Duke was actually a longtime uh, client of mine. I worked with him quite a lot. Duke has uh, Rufus Sport in uh, the Milwaukee area. He's coached some of the best fighters in the world. He, he's, his gym is very, very well respected. Uh, he's actually the guy. But he also has some guys that you like to make fun of, like CM Punk. He actually helped train. Punk I, hey, I, 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 I'm going to let you do your Duke Rufus thing, but I love CM Punk. I'm just trying to get him over. Right? Okay. So any you way give him I another can. opportunity. Okay. Yes, go. All right. Yes. Uh, but uh, Tyron Woodley uh, has been there. Uh, Anthony Showtime Pettis. Uh, he's actually the guy basically responsible for Sergio Pettis, who's a surging uh, uh, under, uh, bantamweight fighter in Bellator now. Uh, he's he's man. He has really got a great roster of fighters that have come through his doors. So a lot of respect respect for Duke. I really liked working with him. Really good guy. So I did want to mention that. Uh, ben Askren. Ben Askren. Yep. Ben yeah. Askren was one of his main guys. And I know I'm forgetting some guys. Um, he had some guys that that didn't do as great. Pascal Krauss was a guy that I got to work with uh, a fair amount. Danny Downs, who actually retired and became a, an MMA journalist and. There's some other guys that he worked with too um, that that have you know Evan Dunham I think believe was one of his guys so he's he's had a lot of a lot of guys in the UFC a lot of guys in Bellator and just a lot of respect for Duke he's a great trainer uh, but uh, anyway so he also beat Dewey Cooper he had a very very decorated kickboxing career for himself um, Cooper also lost to Mighty Mo Saliga uh, the I think they called him the Black Sniper Michael McDonald Gary Goodridge and Strikeforce vet Carter Williams. Uh, which he lost to all of those guys, but you know a lot of respect to him for getting in the the ring with all of them. Uh, and then just prior, just two months prior to the Playboy show, these two actually fought each other. Cooper and Adam Smith they had actually fought each other in their uh, their respective MMA debuts. So they just fought a couple of months ago. Cooper got the decision win, and we would see the same thing. Uh, Adam Smith comes in, and we'll just say he looks pretty swole. Uh, he, he, he looked, he looked pretty, and I'm, I'm not going to say cut. He looked, he looked like he was on the gas. We'll just, we'll just come out and say it. He, to me, he looked like, he like, was on like, the gas. like rackets. Yeah. I mean, like obviously that, yeah. not to that level, <laughs> but he looked like guys that you see in pro wrestling that, you know, that back in the day, at least used to be on steroids. So uh, anyways, it is what it is. Uh, both fighters, I noticed, were wearing red gloves, <laughs> which was interesting because at this point in strike force, one fighter was supposed to wear red and the other one was supposed to wear blue. So again, kind of weird. Uh, first round was all Cooper on the all on the feet. Cooper working mostly kicks. Smith really not offering a whole lot. Smith was on his back foot most of the time. Just really not much to it other than Cooper just hitting Smith. Uh, Cooper grabs a guillotine as the round ends. Ten nine clearly for uh, the Black Cobra. Smith was just he's just so stiff. Uh, early in the second round, you see him uh, catch a Cooper kick, and and that's really kind of the the highlight for Smith. He uses it to push him down to his back. But Cooper quickly reverses. Smith grabs a, a tight guillotine, and he actually looked like he might be in trouble. And Cooper was, was man, he seemed to be grimacing, and Smith was squeezing for all he was worth. But 
Cooper's able to slide out, gets to his feet where he's clearly winning the fight. Smith gets another takedown, but isn't able to do much, and the referee stands them up. Again, I got to give it 10-9 to Cooper. And Smith is looking pretty tired as the final round starts. Some more kicks from Cooper before they clinch, and Smith gets a takedown. Cooper uses the cage to reverse position and gets to the feet. There he lands a pretty nasty punch. It was definitely the highlight of the fight, pretty brutal stuff. Uh, it appeared to knock Smith's mouthpiece out. And, but you got to give Smith some credit. He Man, he's got a chin. He withstood it. He was actually able to get a tank down, which allowed him to clear his head. And the ref stands them up again, even though Smith was working some positioning. A weird call on the ref's part, in my opinion. Another takedown for Smith after eating some strikes. And that's where the fight ends. Pretty competitive, but a clear 30-27 to 27 victory for Cooper, and, and that's how it goes down. I did want to mention that Cooper was representing Palace Fighting Championships, apparently, in this event. And PFC, very solid regional promotion in California for a few years, hosted a lot of big fighters, uh, including Joseph Benavides, the aforementioned Evan Dunham, Mark Munoz, Chad Mendez, and some others. So uh, it was he had that T-shirt on and kind of called it out. So that was that was kind of interesting. Um, both these fighters, they'd compete one more time in MMA, and the final bout for both would not be in strike force. Cooper would go on, out on a win and his career at 2-1, and one, uh, while Smith would lose his final bout to finish up at 0-3. And, and I just realized that doesn't make any sense. If Cooper had three fights and he won these first two against Smith, I don't know how he would go out on a win but end his career at 2-1. and one. So there's some discrepancy there. And um, I'm not going to say that I'm going to look into that because I don't know that I really will, but, uh, but that was a little bit weird. Uh, Smith loses his final bout, finishes up at 0-3, and Smith's name will come up again at the end of this episode. So and you, based on what I said about him at the beginning, you might be able to guess why that is. All right, moving on to the next fight. Daniel Pewter wins a unanimous decision victory over Richard Dalton. Pewter's undefeated at 5-0. Dalton is 3-2-1. No notable names on Dalton's record. Uh, and there were growing whispers that Pewter was being protected, that uh, he, you know, he's just not getting higher levels of competition when he fights. Uh, he had just signed a new deal with Strikeforce that in the press release he said he was excited about. It was a six-fight deal that would last 18 months. Said he was looking forward to being busy and, and all that stuff. Uh, so, but, but with that, Dalton, you know, not really much of a step up in competition at all. So kind of an interesting booking choice for, for what it's worth. But let's jump into the fight. Quick hand, right hand from Dalton to start the fight, who then presses Pewter against the cage. Pewter grabs a very tight standing guillotine. I thought he had it. It looked like Dalton was going to go out, but he weathers the storm, survives. Pewter gets another standing guillotine and later in the first, but Dalton again survives. Uh, Pewter then latches on to a Kimura, but again, Dalton survives. 10-9 for Pewter. Definitely a good showing for him in the first round. I think Pewter needed to have focused less on his Kimura and more on the guillotine. I mean, this guy, I mean, he had, I don't understand. Like, I, 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 I'd love to watch that with somebody other than the broadcast crew <laughs> who was calling this. You mean someone that can uh, actually add some, some, some insight? <laughs> Well, Shamrock did not really, I mean, Shamrock's great, like, obviously, but for some reason, this was not his best uh, um, color commentary. Well, I, th I think he was, you, know? you think he was a little distracted, which we'll we'll get to in just a little bit. But I, I, I don't understand why Pewter did not sink that in. Uh, he seemed to have had the positioning. He had it on for a long time. Maybe he got tired um, eventually, you know, he tried to sort of bring him down and sort of wrap his legs around him, but I, it was nothing was happening. And so it was just, it was sort of interesting to see somebody, I can't recall seeing somebody in that hold for so long, just kind of like that. With, and not, with no and not get it and not get it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, especially that first one, I thought he had him and it's like, 
okay, what are you not doing correctly? Because you've got the guy in position. You're squeezing for all your worth. I remember Shamrock kept saying you can see Pewter's legs like shaking because he's trying so hard to squeeze. So there's something wrong with the technique there. But, you know, but yeah, <laughs> hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, Dalton again rushes Pewter at the beginning of the second round, presses him up against the cage. Pewter sort of drops to his back, and Dalton goes to work from the top. Eventually, Pewter does drop Dalton with the right hand, which was pretty good. Uh, he gets Dalton's back, and uh, he's able. And though though he's able to escape, lots of grind in this round. Again, ten nine for Pewter. Uh, Pewter is looking pretty tired, in my opinion, going into the final round. As with the first two rounds, Dalton immediately gets Pewter against the cage to start things off. Uh, we finally get some sort of striking in the third round with both fighters scoring, but neither fighter really looking all that great on the feet. Uh, despite that, Dalton would land a good right, staggers Pewter, but the former WWE wrestler was clearly the better, more active fighter, and you had to give him all three rounds. Though I guess you could make a case for Dalton getting the, the final round. Yeah, I mean, let me, sorry to interrupt you here, but I mean, figure four weekly, they refer to the quality of the fight as horrible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one of their sources that they quoted who was in there, uh, said it, you know, it was one of the most boring fights I've seen. I don't think it was that boring. Um, it was frustrating for sure. Okay, let me just say something here. Daniel Pewter's trunks were a little too Finn Balor esque for me in an MMA fight. Did you notice that, uh, Phil, or do I just have issues here? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> no, I, I, I remember noticing them because the way that Pewter was on the back of his trunks. Uh, they looked, uh, it looked like the, I think it was tap out the old tap out logo, like the way it's kind of skinny in the middle and gets bigger at the edges. But no, I did not think Finn Balor when I saw his, his, his trunks, <laughs> they were sort of like seventies, sort of like women's volleyball, sort of, oh, they like, look like speedos. They look like, they were like, short. like kind of the light blue, like kind of speedo style, I think. Yeah. yeah. It was very pro wrestling. It was very interesting to sort of see that. Absolutely. Um, so, I don't know, but that being said, this was not Daniel Peters' greatest performance by any means, but, um, you know, I, I just can't get over how much potential this guy had and how the WWE missed out on him because, I mean, he just looked amazing. I mean, he just had, like, his physique and his look, like, no one else looks like him. And uh, I can't believe that they sort of, let him go to MMA. Maybe he didn't want it. Uh, you know, they treated him like crap. They buried him. I mean, I don't know if it's like a John Cena, uh, you know, Ken Kennedy thing or, you know, where they're sort of like, we're not letting that guy be my competition or a Triple H thing or jealousy. But I mean, this guy had it all very, a lot of charisma, very athletic with some more training. He could have been a really good wrestler. He could have been a heel for five years, a baby face selling a ton of merchandise after that. Um, I mean, he should have been the guy who feuded with John Cena and replaced him. And I don't, I just don't get it. It's, I don't see how they let him slip, even in a kind of a performance here where he was oddly, he got tired and he was tested. He just had so much charisma and you don't really see that. And, and so I just, I don't know. I feel like, everybody missed the boat on, on Daniel Pewter. I'd love to talk to him and sort of find out when you look at the interviews like that are out there, it, it, there's not a clear answer. I mean, it's sort of, there's nothing clear that said, why did you not pursue this? And what's the deal here? He just signs this big contract with Strikeforce and then he's done. 
Well, we can definitely reach out to him. Uh, I do have his contact in info, so you know we can definitely give it a shot and see if we can get him on, um, at least for you know a bonus episode or something like that. But uh, you know, I I see your point. I you know I didn't watch him enough in wrestling to know how he was as a wrestler. I to be honest with you, I mean I could agree with you on his look, one hundred percent. He looked like a star. You know, he's got the bleach blonde hair. You know, he's got the body, all that stuff. So I could definitely. You know, he's got the size. I mean, he's a big dude. So yeah, I could see it from that. I, I'm more like at it from an MMA standpoint that I think this guy could have been a huge star for Strike Force. And, you know, you sign him to a six fight deal and he never fights for you again. They, I, I don't understand that. I don't understand why they didn't give him better competition and that would allow him to be on the main card. I mean, this guy was a local guy is from Cupertino. Like, I. I I don't get it from that standpoint. You're more talking about for you missed the boat on it. WWE missed the boat on it. I feel like Strikeforce missed the boat on it because I think and and again capitalizing. This is a guy that got Kurt Angle in a, in a Kimura on national TV. I, I what's up? Like why are we not making a bigger deal out of that? Even if it's pro wrestling, that part was legit. That part was real. He put a, a an Olympic level, an Olympic gold medal. Never mind Olympic level, Olympic gold medal winning wrestler in a Kimura on, on live TV just a year or two before he, or a couple of years before he fights for you. Like, why do we not capitalize on that? Why, why don't you have him on a mic calling out Kurt Angle, who was talking about MMA around that time? So I feel like there was a boat missed, you know, two boats missed there. Uh, and, and, you know, this would be it for both fighters in Strikeforce. Dalton would fight one more time in MMA a few months later. He gets the win, ending his career at 4-3-1. and one. And despite that newly minted six-fight Strikeforce contract, we never see the undefeated Pewter in Strikeforce again. Uh, he goes on to have runs with Ring of Honor and New Japan Pro Wrestling over the next few years, fights a couple more times for smaller MMA promotions, ending his career with a perfect 8-0 record. It is interesting, you know, he was actually scheduled to fight Tank Abbott at an event at the Santa Monica Airport uh, in, in California in 2011, but he had to withdraw due to a knee injury. I think it was a torn meniscus. And uh, Tank actually accused Pewter of seeing him, quote, in shape, at the pre-fight news conference and then pulling out to which Peter replied tank in shape uh, with, <laughs> question mark. So yeah. Uh, but that was it. That's it for MMA for him. Maybe that is the end of your MMA career when, you know, your last option is fighting tank Abbott, tank Abbott at an airport. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, but I did do a little research and, you know, Peter said in an interview with MMA odds makers that why he, he left MMA Quote, I wanted to push myself to the next level and I wanted to really put an impact on this world and change the world. And so, you know, I think um, maybe he wanted more of a service sort of career in life and to do things other than beat each other up. Which, which he has absolutely done. He runs several nonprofits. He trains various groups in the martial arts. If you follow him on social media, he's very big in, on law enforcement and seems to have done very well for himself and he really he's a public speaker and all kinds of stuff so he really is trying to make an impact a positive impact so you got to give it to him for that but you just have to wonder if he could have gotten more out of both his pro wrestling and and mma careers you know for for what it's worth so but maybe we'll look to maybe we'll look to have him on and get some answers there all right, uh, in the next fight, Falonico Nico Vitale submitted Ron Killing Fields, which is a great nickname uh, via strikes at 302 of the first round. This was actually a rematch as Vitale had submitted Fields with a heel hook at an event two years prior to this. Both fighters extremely experienced coming in. Nico's 23-7 uh, and, and Fields is 19-24-1. 
Uh, Vitaly had fought Jason Mayhem Miller, Matt Linlin, Robbie Lawler, Jeremy Horn, and Yushin Okami, so very much a, a seasoned pro. Uh, and then interesting to note on Fields, his very first pro MMA fight was with Mark Hughes, who is Matt Hughes' twin brother. Uh, so that was interesting. He also fought Alan Belcher, uh, Travis View, Terry Martin, Dennis Kang, Christoph Shoshinsky, and Jeremy Horn, losing to all of them. So they both had fought Jeremy Horn, uh, but but both very, very experienced fighters. Uh, and a couple other things there. Uh, Fields was actually a late addition to the card and actually apparently had to cut a lot of weight in the 48 hours leading up to the weigh-ins. Uh, but into the fight, it went pretty quickly. Vitaly gets an early takedown, goes to work. He eventually gets to a crucifix position, rains down some blows, though they didn't appear to be doing a lot of damage. Fields just simply is just not offering up very much, and he taps out without taking much damage. Uh, he, he just, I think he just knew that he couldn't get out of it. So pretty weak fight overall, definitely not one that you should go out of your way to go back and watch. Uh, as you might expect, we would not see Fields inside the Strike Force hexagon again. Continued to compete until 2017, ending his career at 30 and 34, uh, 30, 30, 34 and one. Excuse me. A uh, lot of respect, you know, for a guy like that. Very game fighter. Got a lot of wins. Got a lot of losses. But he's uh, he was always game to fight. Nico will be back in Strike Force a few more times, so we'll discuss him more in the future. All right, we are finally arrived to the main card. In the first f bout of the main card, Bobby Southworth wins over Bill the Butcher Mahood as he verbally submitted due to injured ribs at 115 of the first round. Mahood had a 15-5-1 record coming off a decision win over Steve Steinbess in Bodog. Mahood was a, a very seasoned vet, known for being aggressive, better on his feet than on the ground. He did have one fight in the UFC. A loss to Patrick, uh, I'm sorry, Patrick Griffin, Forrest Griffin. He also fought Jason McDonald and Patrick Cote. I, I actually remember the Forrest Griffin fight. I don't know why this sticks out in my head, but it was a rear naked choke uh, where uh, Forrest, I believe, had gotten a body triangle on the hood and, and choked him out. And I I think Forrest had dyed his hair red, I, I, like orange, basically. I don't know why that sticks out in my head so much, but I just, for whatever reason, maybe it's Mahood's bleach blonde hair, but it, that's always stuck out in my mind for some reason. Uh, but in the pre-fight interview, Mahood had a very raspy voice. Uh, it was explained at the very beginning of the fight that the butcher had undergone vocal, vocal cord surgery months prior due to damage done from years of screaming while cornering other fighters. <laughs> so <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but it actually would come into play in the fight, actually. So, And we'll talk about that in just a second. Southworth had just won the Strikeforce Light Heavyweight belt in his most recent fight, but he actually had dealt a, a with a long layoff of 10 months. So in an interview, he said that the layoff was due to contractual issues, and but they'd been worked out, so he was excited to get back to it. Uh, but at the beginning of the fight, they clinch against the cage, trading knees. Southworth gets a takedown, and after some positioning, Mahood try, tried to verbally tap out, but because of his lack of a voice, the ref couldn't hear it. So someone actually had to yell tap at the ref before he, he stepped in. And I, I rewatched it. I tried to see where Mahood had, had, had injured himself. It looked like he'd broken ribs. Uh, very clearly in pain. I think you could actually see the rib or the ribs like sticking out. Uh, but that may have just been, you know, like you guys are, these guys are in good shape. So maybe it was just you could see him very closely. But it's hard to tell where or how it happened, but my guess was that it would be a, a, a freak accident on the takedown. Yeah, this was another thing that was weird. Mahood looked really old to me coming into the fight. I mean, he did not look like a fighter, so to speak. Um, so I feel like he was sort of outmatched from the get-go. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't see any bones sticking out. I tried to see the punch. I didn't really see anything that was extra vicious or 
or wicked or anything like that. I mean, I've seen a lot harder shots to the ribs where guys don't have their ribs broken. And so to me, it must've been some freak thing. Maybe it was on the takedown, something like that. But I mean, if you think about what we saw in this fight, you think guys would be breaking their ribs all the time yeah. with those kind of punches. And we yeah. just don't see that. So, I mean, I'm sure obviously you could see he was in pain, but I just, I don't know where it happened. It's yeah, weird to it's, see. it's hard. I really, it's just a guess. I mean, who knows, but uh, you, you really got to feel for Southworth. I mean, his, you know, he, he comes off the ultimate fighter and he has a questionable loss to Stefan Bonner. And then, you know, he's this, the cage door fly open during his strike force debut bout after, after he just caught James, the Sandman Irvin with a really solid punch. Then he wins the belt in a largely pan fight over Vernon Tiger white in which white just didn't, you know, kind of an awkward uh, fighter that, you know, is not known for making his opponents look good. And, and so now you got that, then he has to sit out for a while. Then he gets a win due to a freak rib injury just over a minute into his next fight. I mean, it's just, it's tough, you know, like I, I, you got to feel for him. It's just kind of a run of bad luck, but uh, he would be back in strike force. So we'll talk to him a little bit more. And again, as a reminder, we do have an interview with Bobby in the, uh, in the, the archives. So make sure you check that out. Uh, this would be it for the butcher and strike force. He would fight for a few more years and actually would not lose again. He retired in 2010 on a five fight win streak ending up at 27 and one. And again, the butcher will come up a little bit more at the end of this episode. And again, I can let you guess as to why. All right. George Gamebred Masvidal makes his uh, strike force debut. He TKOs Matt Lee with punches at 133 of the first round. Uh, now, obviously one of the biggest stars in MMA today. He was 11 and two, pretty much an unknown coming into this fight, though he was coming off a TKO stoppage victory over Eve Edwards at a, a, a at a Bodog event. And that is Eve Edwards, one of the great early lightweights. So nobody, you know, nobody that, that, uh, Nobody should be giving Edwards any type of disrespect. I mean, you know, anybody that knows the sport knows that, that Eve was was top shelf. So that's a big win for Masvidal for sure. Uh, but interesting in the pre-fight interview, Masvidal was, was still Masvidal. Even back in 2007, his pre-fight interview talks about his confidence and how it helps him as a fighter. And, you know, he wasn't saying a lot of quotable quotes like he does now. But you could see, you know, you could see the beginning of that quote-unquote character uh, being being built at that time. Matt Lee, he's born and raised in South Korea. He'd also fought on the same Bodog card as Masvidal. He'd lost the decision to Eddie Alvarez, and he was 9-6-1 coming into this bout. Michael Clark Duncan joins the commentators ringside. For this one, they have a, a kind of a, a little bit of a humorous back and forth with him and Frank Shamrock, so that was kind of cool. And I, I love uh, Green Mile. That's one of my favorite movies, so anytime I get to see the uh, – sadly, you know, left us too soon, but anytime you get to see Michael Clark Duncan, who was a huge fight fan – you know, it's it's a treat, but uh, Masvidal shows some some good stand up. So early. so wait, Phil, I yeah. gotta interrupt you because sure. you mentioned that. Do you still cry when you watch the Green Mile? I will I not. Mean... I will neither confirm nor deny. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> I don't. But do we need, do we need to take a break now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't still cry. I may have cried in the past, in the in you know when I first saw the movie. I may have, but oh, that's a great movie. I yeah. love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Great movie. Uh, that and Shawshank Redemption, I could just watch basically those two back to back, like, and be happy with that. All right, so Masvidal shows some really good stand up early on. Lee also puts on a pretty good showing, uh, but Masvidal gets a takedown, uses Lee to get back up to land some solid, uh, solid knees and vicious elbows. One of the elbows drops Lee; it kind of hits him behind the ear 
uh, and Gamebra and they actually cut him. Uh, and Gamebra's all over him, forcing the TKO stoppage. And Lee protests the stoppage a little bit, but I was like, this is one of those ones where I'm like, what are you protesting, dude? Like, you're done. Like, there's no question that he was not protecting himself at all. And Masvidal, really, really strong showing, even though he wasn't in the cage for very long. Yeah, I mean, Lee was mouth was literally kissing the canvas like when they stopped it i mean there was no way he was coming out of coming out of that so it's odd that he was complaining i mean it's one of those things where maybe his head is okay but you're getting pummeled you're done i mean you have to be able to defend yourself yeah uh most of all was just on fire here i mean it was like this just intensity that he had and he was throwing those short elbows which were devastating but it was really the knees to the body that set it all up you know it's like the head moves the body does not and so once you disable the body that head is there and it's just so cool to watch the technical expertise of these fighters when they're young in their career uh you know whether it's gilbert melendez or josh thompson or or jorge mastaval it's it's just beautiful to watch you know they're just all in in their technique and it totally paid off yeah, there's no question. You could definitely see the potential there for, you know, this is a this is a guy to watch. And he would he would be back in strike force several more times, so we'll discuss him more uh, in the future. Uh, this would be it for Lee in strike force. Uh, he'd fight for several more years. He'd lose to uh, Ryan Quinn and Ben Saunders in in uh, Bellator. He retired in 2011 with a 14-10 and one record. I just, I realized something as I was researching this. I think Ben Saunders looks like Sasha Baron Cohen, the uh, Borat, the guy from Borat. <laughs> I, I if you think about it, look him up. I I think he looks a lot like him. So I may be I may be off on that. Well, uh, could Borat actually be him? I mean, he I, does play multiple roles. <laughs> hey, he does he does impersonate a lot of people. If he was gonna, so we'll say this: if he if if Borat was going or Sasha Baron Cohen was going to impersonate a fighter i think it would be ben saunders because i think it'd be the easiest for pet so uh you can you you can let me know your thoughts on that at inside the hexagon pod uh tweet we're starting or 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 instagram or hit me up at fill at inside the hexagon.com let me know if you think that borat could be ben saunders (laughs) we we just started a whole new conspiracy there you go there you go and now we just need to rope in uh uh bob sap somehow in there and we'll be we'll be in shape (laughs) all right next fight billy evangelista or as the uh, as the announcer announced it, Billy Evangelista. So it might be Evangelista. I'm gonna say. I got it. Let go me ahead. just start. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but that 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 announcer had his Spanish down. Oh well, he was he was Hispa- <laughs> he was Hispanic. His name was Lupe something. So he was he was Hispanic. So yeah, I, I would hope so. And he he's was gonna working know, hard. He's gonna know better than I would. Evangelista. You know that uh, I'm. You know maybe Billy told him that's how you say it. Maybe that is how you yeah. say it. I don't know, but I you know. Until I hear otherwise, I'm going to go with Evangelista, which is basically evangelist in, in, in my mind. Um, hey, I, the whole time when I when I saw this guy's name, I'm like, damn, this is Cyborg's husband. This is going to be a good fight. Like, oh, my God, this is the wrong one. Yeah, no, 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 <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, anyways, so Evangelista, he's uh, he gets a split decision win over Clint Cornell. Uh, he was 4-0 coming into this bout. Very uh, Had a win over a very, very tough Ryan Healy in his MMA debut in the WEC. So this is a... Definitely a guy to watch. Uh, Cornell, former Golden Gloves boxer, was 2-2. Two and two. He had made his MMA debut at Shamrock versus Gracie the previous year, submitting Juan Miranda with a second-round Anaconda choke. Uh, he had had two fights in the IFL, losing both. But, so both these guys were pretty experienced uh, for guys that only had a few fights. And it showed in this fight. 
in the first round, uh, Evangelista actually got cut uh, on the with from strikes on the feet. Both fighters showing some some pretty decent striking, though Evangelista was much more technical, while Coronel was kind of more winging a lot of power strikes. But definitely a good, entertaining first round. Uh, they really traded shots in the second round. Billy was much more accurate, nailing Coronel, who answered with a nice left hook. All stand up in the middle frame. Both fighters were landing. It was it was definitely a good a good uh, a good round for both. And then in the third round. More trading on the feet. Neither fighter really getting a clear advantage. About halfway through the round, Evangelista got a takedown. And it was, just, it was an absolute war. And I got to say, it almost looked like they had an agreement to keep it on their feet until Evangelista seemed to kind of remember that this was an MMA fight. And he goes he, he goes for a takedown. And my guess is that he went for that takedown to help cement the win. That just basically he knew that on the feet it was pretty even. And so just from an optic standpoint, it would look good if he took his opponent down and, and, and he did, but just an entertaining slugfest for sure. Both fighters really made a great showing, uh, but, but a big win for Evangelista, even if it was by split decision, uh, Evangelista would become a very familiar face in strike force. He would fight eight more times for the promotion. So we'll be discussing him plenty. Cornell would fight one more time in strike force. So we'll discuss him a bit more in the future. You know, I like the blood in this and I like the intensity and I can see what you're saying in terms of the fact that there was a lot of exchanges that were exciting. But to me, it sort of felt a little sloppy. I felt as though they spent a little too much time on their feet, as you noted. Uh, the boxing skill was not great, in my opinion. Um, yes, they were hitting each other and going after, but it felt just like two guys who were trying to, you know, at times survive. Um, at times with a little bit of offense it was a bit one-dimensional and then it got exciting at the end with the takedown attempt but you know sort of by then it, it was too late i would like to seen somebody go for it earlier um and they you know they got tired and so yeah i mean there were moments but it wasn't my favorite fight of the night yeah i, I mean I, I guess that's fair i i kind of disagree i think that they i think they went at it i they stayed in the pocket a fair amount but uh, I, yeah, it's, I, I could see your point, but they, they both definitely got fatigued and I think there was some inexperience showing there, but these guys were, you know, less than five fights into their career. So, you know, it was, I think it was about as good as you're going to get at that stage of their career. All right. In the next fight, Josh, the punk Thompson knocked out Adam Lynn with punches at 4:45 of the first round. Uh, Lynn was kind of an interesting choice here. He's a veteran of the IFL with a record of 11 and seven. Uh, he'd lost to Nick Diaz and Jay Huron, and he'd lost two of his last three by knockout, getting a decision win. In, in his uh, in his most recent fight, but not somebody that, you know, would again against a guy of like Josh Thompson, who's on a, a five fight winning streak, who's, you know, clamoring and, and aiming to get his uh, his title shot at rematch. And, you know, a guy that 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 really is on the rise and you put him against a guy that's 11 and seven that doesn't have much name value, especially since Josh Thompson apparently had a 34 and two record. So, uh, <laughs> but kind of an interesting booking choice in my opinion, but you could say that about just about every fight on this card where there was somebody with a, a name matched up with somebody that didn't have, you know, the greatest record. It just, and we'll, again, we'll talk more about that, but Kung Lee joins what, what might've, there were, Definitely some interesting parts of this fight, but unfortunately they didn't really have much to do with what happened in the cage. Uh, <laughs> Kung Lee joins the fight for com joins in on the, the commentary for the fight, sitting next to Frank Shamrock, uh, who and these two would actually face each other six months after this event. And Brian Weber, uh, you know, the the commentator asked if they wanted to fight each other, and they both answered the affirm affirmative. So it sounded like the Battle of San Jose was was clearly on the horizon. Something was up with Shamrock. I mean, he was having a good day. He was so charismatic. 
on this show. I mean, his, his entire body language, he's turned sideways. He's looking at Kung Lee. He's looking at Weber. Um, you know, at one, at one point, he actually turned to Kung and said, you know, Kung thinks he's the king of San Jose, and I'm just trying to remind him it is my house. So they're definitely building up the, the fight. And so Shamrock, as we will see later, um, he was definitely in, in a really flamboyant and entertaining form with his commentary tonight. Yeah, if, if you want to call it that. Uh, but <laughs> it, it, the commentary, definitely quite controversial. And I will say this about Kung. He did not make a great showing on commentary. Uh, you could hear Frank trying to kind of tee him up. And, and Kung just, I don't know, he didn't really say a whole lot. And maybe it was because of what Frank's about to say. But after saying some positive things about Josh Thompson's fight approach, Frank Shamrock says, and I quote, little known, little known fact about Josh Thompson, he's the first openly gay MMA fighter out here on the circuit, end quote. I Just completely out of left field. He's just talking about how Josh is a fast starter, and, <laughs> and then he just... Like, I, I don't, man, I don't know what to say about that, but Weber sort of covers for Shamrock, uh, but it just, it really, it was really unprofessional. And there's this burgeoning feud between Shamrock and Thompson, and it, it kicks into high gear after this, and we'll talk more about that in, in a bit, but I, I was just not a fan of that comment at all. I'm going to talk a little bit about the comment in a second, but, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, at a show at the Playboy Mansion, where you've got a bunch of people who don't really know anything about MMA watching the show and a lot of just obviously the show is weird to begin with like a homophobic sort of comment like that I don't know it seems like it went with the show which was kind of kind of tone deaf I just you know it was like I'm not surprised Frank would say something really dumb like that on this show because the whole show was it's kind of a weird setting to begin with, but I want to talk about his comment a little bit later, but let's go over the fight. Well, and I, I was just kind of latching onto that though. I will say that you're talking about tone deaf and dated. I mean, the, the commentators kept, especially Weber kept mentioning just the beautiful people in the crowd. And there were some things said by the commentators that I, I mean, they weren't outright, you know, offensive, like the, you know, like the way that uh, Shamrock said this, but there were some things said about, you know, the, the people and the, the, specifically the women, Not, again, nothing just outright, you know, offensive, but just little comments that today would never fly. You know, it just wouldn't, wouldn't fly today. So that was, yeah, it was kind of cringeworthy, I think. And this, that comment in particular just kind of was the, the cherry on top. But as you said, back to the fight, great, great takedown for, from Thompson about a minute and a half in. Lynn gets up pretty quickly. Thompson then shows some good knees from the clinch before using a wizard to counter a takedown attempt. Uh, after an accidental groin strike, Thompson takes a short break, but but he's okay. Uh, and then shortly before the end of the round, Thompson catches Lynn with a right hand, seating him down, then follows up with a bunch of right hands before the ref steps in to wave, thing, wave things off. Uh, I will mention, going back to the commentary that Kung Lee mentioned right after Josh got his hand raised, that he knows the punk has a girlfriend and that he knows her. And, you know, so he kind of, I don't know defending is the right way to put it, but you kind of she does exist. Yeah, Frank. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it was obviously a volley back, you know, in response to what Frank had said. But, but yeah, it was you know kind of not not a whole lot to the fight. I mean, it was a showcase for for Josh against, I, I guess, but you know against a subpar competition. So I, I don't really know how much this did for him. Yeah, it was a little bit boring for a, a Josh Thompson fight, for sure. I mean, Lynn was definitely trying to stay close, stay snug. He was pushing Thompson against the cage. And, uh, you know, once Thompson was able to get some space, 
it was over. Uh, so, you know, it was it showed that uh, Thompson had knockout power, but it was, yeah, wasn't really a good fight, and it's not Thompson's fault. No, but you get we do have to mention. I mean, Thompson, you know, again, the twenty four pound weight cut in twenty four hours did not seem to affect him whatsoever. Uh, he was, you know, his gas tank was as it normally is, and he was pressing and pushing forward, so didn't seem to bother bother him at all. So, you know, hats off to him for that. Uh, Lynn would go on a tear after this loss. He went sh- six straight before losing his final two bouts in his career, which ended in 2012 at 17 and 10. Uh, it would take another nine months, but Thompson would finally get a, a, another title shot. This one against Gilbert Melendez the following year. And I am very much looking forward. That's going to be the first in their trilogy of fights. And I'm very much looking forward uh, to discussing that fight for sure. All right, in the next bout, Joe Diesel Riggs makes his Strike Force debut and he beats Eugene Jackson with a KO via punches at 356 of the first round. Uh, this would be a bout between two grizzled veterans in Riggs and Jackson who had a sizable age difference between the two of them. Riggs was only 24 years old and held a 26 and 8 record. I mean, that is a full MMA career right there, and he's only 24. Uh, Jackson was 15, 8, and 1, and he was 41 years old. So, uh, huge discrepancy between the two of them age wise. Uh, Jackson, as we discussed recently, had won the vacant Strike Force U.S. middleweight title in a fight with Ronald Jun the previous December, while Riggs had recently competed, uh, excuse me, completed a six-fight run in the UFC where he beat Jason Von Flew, Nick Diaz, and Chris Lytle, going three and three in those fights. And I'll, I'll mention uh, the Nick Diaz and the Chris Lytle fights are are very memorable because in the Lytle fight he became the first person and one of only two fighters to to actually stop Chris Lytle with with strikes. So pretty, pretty impressive there. And then Nick Diaz, uh, it's MMA lore, but uh, they get in a fight at the hospital after their, their, <laughs> their fight. So it went to extra rounds, uh, which we'll, we'll discuss momentarily. But uh, definitely very, two very, very tough fighters that are locking horns in the Strike Force hexagon. Yeah, it's sort of uh, right before the fight started, Ken, uh, sorry, Frank Shamrock got a little goofy again with who? Kendra Wilkinson? Oh, yeah, was, Kendra, was she an actor? You know, was she an actress or no, a Playboy she was, bunny? Or? Yeah, she was a playmate. She was uh, Hugh Hefner's girlfriend. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So she was kind of famous around this time. She, and uh, I think they probably. had like a show. Like there was like a TV show, like a like a Real Housewives type show for Hef's girlfriends, I think, or something like that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, yeah like a reality yeah, show some, on like the E-Network or something yeah, like that. So she'd be, yeah, so I think she was like a reality TV star at this point. Yeah, so, so Frank acts like he's approaching her at the bar or something and he, he you know he looks to her she's now in the seat that michael clark duncan was in that kung lee was in and now she's there and he says you've been an athlete for a long time in a lot of sports you ever think about being an athlete in this sport i just like i'm done frank like give me a break what does you know? that even I mean, mean? The- that's not even like a pickup <laughs> line like what does that actually mean <laughs> seriously I, mean, I don't know what that means <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, this, she wouldn't even give Alexa bliss, you know, a competition like it's, you know, in a fit, in a fist fight. It's like, what are you doing? You know, but um, it was just really awkward that uh, he was sort of doing that. And then she says, you know, this is my first fight I've ever seen, you know, and I love it. And I'm like, you really don't want people. This is the first fight you've ever seen. (laughs) You don't want them in the chair. I don't care. It's not, doesn't make it feel meaningful. Um, 
So that, that sort of stood out. Eugene Jackson, by the way, they announced him as being from East Palo Alto, which is a little special to me because if I can deviate for a second, going back to our Bay Area years, Phil, uh, my first job at the San Jose Mercury News, they told me I was going to cover City Hall. What they didn't tell me was that I was going to be covering East Palo Alto City Hall. And for those of you familiar with Palo Alto, it's not like East Palo Alto. My editor, you know, he actually told me not to wear red or blue when entering East Palo Alto because those are the gang colors and I could get shot or stabbed and uh, he was serious and so uh, it's it was it was kind of a good memory lane thing to hear that um, East Palo Alto he wasn't just being like you know a, a comical East Palo Alto for a time was the murder capital of the country and uh, you know actually it was not that bad when I was there that it's a good community and had a worse reputation than it deserved but I was happy when I got out of there and got to cover you know look, move a little bit north and actually cover San Jose City Hall actually not north but south uh, you ever spend any time in East Palo Alto Phil? I I can't say that I spent time in East Palo Alto I spent time on the the other Palo Alto um, I actually worked for seven months in uh, in Palo Alto so I and I, you know, growing up, at, I went to high school in Cupertino. Uh, I definitely knew the reputation of East Palo Alto. I had my uh, my youth pastor at my church. His best friend w went to church in East Palo Alto, and that was kind of one of the, you know, I was I'm gonna say a joke, but that was one of the things that we definitely knew East Palo Alto. That was not a place to mess with. And the interesting thing, there's a Palo Alto itself is actually a pretty affluent. Uh, it's a pretty affluent city. It's it's actually it's right smack dab between. Uh, San Jose and San Francisco, and there's a lot of well-off people that live in Palo Alto, but you do not, I don't know how it is today, but back then you did not want to be caught, uh, you know, at nighttime on the streets in East Palo Alto. That was not a, a, a place you would want to be for sure. So, And it, it was literally uh, just one side of the highway. Like, it, it wasn't, they were, East Palo Alto and Palo Alto are like, you know, a hundred yards apart. It's just, it was crazy. But, um, so anyway, East Palo Alto, represented and um it was actually not as bad as they said uh but it, i was i definitely wore white when i went in there hmm. all right well um this uh let's let's jump into the action Riggs starts off strong and just he just keeps pouring it on i mean he clips jackson with a straight left diesel gets him out and starts raining down some blows Riggs then made a, actually a really slick uh transition to an arm bar for mount i was really impressed by it and jackson actually shows his moxie and his strength and gets out of it uh, eventually Riggs though gets a TKO win with strikes from, from Mount and just, it was pretty brutal. There was really, Riggs was really all over him and, and kind of what he said in the, in the, the pre-fight press, uh, press release that anywhere he's good, I'm better. And, and I think Riggs showed it. it was a big showing for Diesel. Yeah, this was a sick TKO. I mean, he's just pounding him in the face, uh, unblocked right to the mouth, laying Jackson out. And uh, Jackson kind of sprawled out, and that's when the referee stepped in. I mean, this was probably the most dramatic finish of the night. Yeah, it was. It was definitely. Yeah, I agree. It was. It was. I think it was the best finish of the night for sure. Uh, Riggs will be back in Strike Force in five months, and he's actually going to be our guest on next week's show. Uh, as we record this, I've actually already interviewed with uh, interviewed Joe, and we get into his career. And uh, we'll just say I I have to I'm. <laughs> I got to use the the bleep button, the censor button on this interview a lot uh, because I asked Riggs about uh, his feelings about Nick Diaz and the fight that they had. And 
Yeah, there's a lot of expletives in that one. So this is going to be I this is going to be interesting, and it's actually new territory for me as far as editing goes, because I Uh-oh. I've never had this before, and uh, so this is going to be interesting. But Joe ended up being a great interview, and and I'm glad that I got to connect with him. So uh, that that's actually going to be our episode next week. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but this would be it for Jackson's MMA career. He would retire after this, completing his career with a very respectable 15-9-1 record. Uh, got to, you know, fought in the UFC, you know, won a title in Strike Force. was in one of the early UFC video games. Uh, he actually, after this, had, I saw an article from 2011, I believe it was, where he was talking about getting his sons ready for MMA. And as we were talking, I, I kind of quickly looked them up. And uh, one of his sons, uh, Nico, ended up fighting several times. Uh, he fought uh, four four fights, uh, four pro fights, including one for Bellator. He actually got a win on a, a Josh Thompson headlined card uh, in 2017, and uh, and so he ended up with a two and two record. hasn't fought since 2017. Had actually a pretty long amateur career. Uh, went uh, was one two three four five six and one in his amateur career, and then two and two in his pro career. And then his other son uh, Casey. It looks like he he actually never he had some canceled bouts on his record, but actually never fought uh, prof- professionally. Had some canceled canceled MMA. Uh, I'm sorry, amateur bouts. So for what it's worth, it doesn't look like either. Either of their careers took off, but much respect to Eugene Jackson for sure. All right, then we move on to the main event. El Nino Gilbert Melendez gets a unanimous decision victory over Tetsuya Kato. Uh, after fighting four times in 2006, Melendez had actually sat out for a while. This was going to be his uh, his first fight in almost 10 months. And again, as we mentioned earlier, he hadn't fought for Strike Force since the promotion's second event, the previous June Revenge, where he won the lightweight title. That said, he was undefeated at 12-0 coming into this fight. Kato was very experienced, 19-7 and coming into this one. He did have some good names on his record, uh, and he actually had lost to Anderson Silva early on in the Spiders' career. So uh, this was going to be an interesting test for Melendez, but as we saw with most of the other fights, there's a pretty clear favorite coming into this, uh, especially when it was a big name. Uh, had a surprise on commentary for this one. Hanato Babalu Sobral, a UFC veteran, had annou- uh, he was uh, actually revealed by Frank Shamrock to have signed with Strikeforce, so a big signing. Uh, for for Scott Coker and and he'd go on to make some waves in the promotion so we'll discuss him more in the future but that was kind of a surprise seeing Babalu on this one on on commentary. Yeah, it was definitely cool to to see that. Uh, Frank was definitely uh, putting him over. He was respectful and he you know he he really made it out to be a big deal. And um, I love seeing young Jake Shields valet uh, corner uh, Gilbert Melendez. Did you just you say know, valet? <laughs> Did you just say hey, I said valet and corner, Va- valet and corner. Hey, maybe Frank Shamrock's rubbing off on me here. No, um, <laughs> hey, I think you know just because I say valet, you think Miss Elizabeth. I don't mean it like that. I mean you know, sort of just escorting to the ring. He's not just know? escorting him though. I mean he's you know he's getting him ready. He's giving him advice. I, that's yeah. I'm offended for for Jake. <laughs> um, I, I love Jake Shields. I really wanted him to beat GSP in Canada. I was disappointed, uh, but um, I thought for sure he was going to be the guy who was going to go into the UFC and just tap everybody out. And uh, so, yeah, don't don't try to start anything with me, and Jake Shields. <laughs> hey, right? Jake's going to be on the I'll, I'm, Jake's going to be I, on the podcast. I'll tell him. I will tell. I him. got a lot of respect for for Jake Shields. You know. So <laughs> uh, anyway, it's sort of like seeing him and. Uh, Gilbert, it's like two of the four horsemen there. You know, there's no Nick, no Nate Diaz there. But uh, that was really cool. I like seeing that. And I think you mentioned this earlier, but this was the fight where they said over 
or right before the you know main event over 500 million strong watching oh, us now good God. Live. come on like how do you even say that like as anybody that's never happened ever in anything yeah so yeah there's never been anything watched by 500 million people <laughs> least of all a, a strike force event at a playboy mansion i mean come on seriously <laughs> Like you got like so, the Super Bowl, you know, or or what, like whatever the Olympics attended by a hundred thousand people, or you know WrestleMania thirty, whatever it was at the at, at the the Dallas, you know, whatever the 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 arena in Dallas, you know, one hundred five thousand. AT and T. Yeah, 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 and then yeah, and oh yeah, sandwich, you know, right at the top of that list, five hundred million watch. Yeah, I mean, come on, man. Like, come on. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it made me feel much better about 93,173 in the Silver Dome as a real number. Because, you know, if I'm going to believe 500 million, I'm definitely going to believe that that number for sure, too, you know, as far <laughs> as lore goes. Um, but, yeah, that was dumb. I think it hurts the credibility of the show to have somebody even trying to say that. And then the announcers just just nothing. Yeah. You know, don't even acknowledge it. Yeah. Uh, I agree, but uh, all El Nino in the first round, he drops Kato with a right hand, and who was able to weather the storm and and wrap up Melendez. But he, man, the the Japanese fighter was he was taking a beating in that first round for sure. Yeah, you know, I really liked uh, Gilbert's, uh, you know, Gilbert's short right hand. He's measured. Again, he's part of this crop of fighters in Strike Force that really built the company. Very conservative, but effective in everything they did. This fight reminded me a little bit, this round for sure, of when he fought Shinya Aoki, who was a submission master, and mm -hmm. Gilbert just beat him. He, you know, he was just so smart in there, and he was just one step ahead. And he said, I know what you're good at, and I'm not going to go there. And he never did. And I think that's one of Gilbert's sort of strengths is just that 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 intelligence inside the cage yeah. that just that brain to, to be a smart fighter yeah very intelligent fighter no no question about that uh coming into the second round melendez he looks very fresh kato looks like he's been in a fight in a dog fight commentators were saying they believe melendez had hurt his hand early in the second round as evidenced by him not throwing it despite his massive success with it in the first a cut near Kato's right eye was flowing blood to the point where the referee actually pauses the fight to take a look, but they continued two rounds for Melendez for sure. And then in the third and final round, El Nino shot in early, got a takedown against the cage, he utilized his ground and pound while trying to pass guard. Uh, they got back to their feet. Kato actually had a few good moments, but Melendez was just too much, even with a possibly injured right hand. He stuffed a Kato takedown, uh, attempted with about a minute left, and then they both swung for the fences to end the fight. Uh, honestly, I'd give the final round to Kato, but but Melendez absolutely won the fight. Uh, Gilbert would actually be back in the cage a couple months later fighting for Yaranoka, which was kind of the replacement promotion for a little while for Pride in Japan. And that would actually be his first loss because he was 13-0 after this one uh, as he would lose a unanimous decision to Mitsuhiro Ishida. Uh, and then he'd be back in strike force in early 2008. Uh, Kato wouldn't fight again for over a year and a half. And I, I don't know if it was recovering from this fight or what because he was pretty banged up. But he would lose two of his last three and end his career in 2009 with a 20 and 10 record. This post-fight interview really bugged me. Uh, Shamrock got inside the ring and he was just beaming with enthusiasm. I mean, this is the happiest I've ever seen Frank Shamrock ever, and he, he you know, he's just so relaxed inside the cage. But it kind of reminded me of what I really don't like about post-fight MMA interviews and. Obviously, Joe Rogan has been the main guy sort of over the years in the UFC, the most high profile who's done that. But there's sort of this 
thing that happens in MMA with the fighters when they interview, and it's there's a lot of praise being thrown around. Um, they're really just holding the microphone and asking a couple of generic questions, and then the MMA fighters go. And um, it, it bugs me. We saw that here with uh, with with uh, Melendez. You know, I grew up sort of watching Larry Merchant on HBO. And he would interview the boxers with serious questions. I mean, he never gushed over them. Uh, he never broed out with them or turned into frat boy with them. In fact, sometimes he, he argued with them. I mean, I'm sure you remember that that clip of, uh, you know, when he got that argument with, with, the, with the Floyd Mayweather. Mayweather. Yeah, I actually, know? as soon as you mentioned Larry Merchant, the first thing I thought of was the Floyd, the Floyd Mayweather thing that got really ugly. Yeah, and he's like, if I was thirty years younger, I'd kick your ass or something. <laughs> yeah, like that. I, I mean, remember that. Like, like who says that to Floyd Mayweather? You know, and so um, I just Frank, literally, like he he was just he was touching Gilbert's elbow and his wrist and his holding his hand and his shoulder and it's like, dude, you're not on his team. Like you're supposed to be interviewing him. Um, it would be great, you know. What would have happened if this, you know, non-title fight had gone into a fourth round? You know, do you think you would have been able to survive with the with the injured hand? You know, ask him a question, make him think. Instead, the question was, was uh, what do you think? Looks like you broke your hand. You know, and it's just like, dude, you got to dive in. We want to push these fighters to be to be better. You know, when they talk more, that helps them. It, it, it's not about them marketing themselves. Like they get better at communication and then there's somebody who people want to listen to and you've got to ask them real questions. And I just, I don't know. I, I've always sort of felt that the MMA post-fight announcer is like, it's part of the team and it really shouldn't be that way. Like it really should be like the a journalist coming in and asking them, what went well and what didn't in the fight? Am I nuts here, Phil? Do you see what I'm trying to say? I, I definitely, I see what you're trying to say. I can't say that yeah. I thought this way at all. Um, and, uh -huh. and so I, I, yeah, I mean, this is why you're on the show. You bring a different perspective. I, yeah, I, I don't mind the broing out as much, but now that you mention it, I would have liked to hear the answer to what would you have done in a fourth round? You know, if, if we'd gone that far. So I think it's a very fair statement, just not one that I had really thought of. Uh, but, but yeah, I, Definitely would not not a huge fan of Frank's post fight interviews. Period. They definitely could come across as pretty awkward. And you know he's he's not a he's not a journalist. You know he's not he's not a professional broadcaster. And it kind of comes through. You know in this it was kind of the same thing with it was exactly the same thing with Bill Goldberg at Shamrock versus Baroni. It was the same type of stuff. So I think Rogan usually does a pretty good job in you know inside the cage when he does those post fight interviews i mean he's happy for the guy but you know he definitely talks about the technique side of it which i enjoy so yeah i i, I don't disagree with you i hadn't thought of that but I, I think it makes sense so i think that's fair all right well that's the end of the show gilbert does mention in his post-fight interview that he had hurt his hand in training a couple months prior and that it was still bugging him so that that was really what it was he didn't think it was broken and i don't think it turned out to be broken because he fought just a couple months later uh, but let's let's talk about salaries for this. I'm not going to go over every salary, uh, but Melendez made 30k, no win bonus. Joe Riggs made 29,500 with a 15k win bonus. Josh Thompson made 24,500 with a 10k win bonus. Bobby Southworth made 20k with a 10k win bonus. Uh, Jorge Masvidal 18,182.50, no win bonus. Total fighter payroll on the card two two hundred thirty thousand one hundred eighty two dollars and fifty cents. Uh, kind of kind of crazy i mean if they if they had a thousand people pay a thousand dollars each that's a million dollars not including 
anything else which of course they had i'm sure they had split that with uh with with show or with uh, not with showtime but with uh the playboy people but yeah not not exactly nobody's going home and and you know buying a house based off of what they made off this card yeah i'm always baffled by the, the low mma pay we talked about this it still exists today unless you're you know a few fighters at the top of the card uh, it's crazy that anyone would fight for that after, you know, taxes and your camp and everybody you got to pay for. And I realize you got to start somewhere, but um, I don't know. It's it's a, it's not very much money, even for 2007. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. And you still have guys that are making, you know, making this type of money. You know, that that's kind of the crazy thing, too, is that all these years later, guys are still getting paid. Uh, you know, some guys are still getting paid this these amounts of money. So there's. Yeah, it, I agree with you, and it's we've kind of touched on this throughout the the show and or throughout the you know the episodes we've done. But yeah, I think fighter pay is definitely an issue. But then when you look at what WWE wrestlers are getting paid as far as their the percentage of revenue, I mean, you look at you look at the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, hockey. They all have player unions, and they make sure that they get a fair share of the of the revenue that's coming in. And when then you go to combat sports, where these guys are literally putting their lives on the line. And, and it's, I mean, I think in the UFC, I think they make, I want to say it's like 20% of the revenue. And in wrestling, I think it's like, or WWE, I think it's like 8% or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's just for what these guys, you know, I always think about my, my five-year-old son and, you know, my three and a half-year-old daughter as we, as we record this. And I'm like, I do not want you, I would love for them to train jujitsu. Uh, if they wanted to train MMA for fun, you know, that'd be cool, but I don't want them playing in sports where they've got a higher higher chance of getting CT when you especially when you look at the money that they're going to make and ironically football is the one out of you know football and hockey are the the lower paying I believe over basketball and and baseball and those are the ones you're most likely to deal with the CT thing and then in combat sports as you know as we're talking about unless you make it to the tippy top you're not going to be you're not going to get rich off this despite the incredible amount of talent involved so I agree. I, I I wouldn't do it. I mean, I'll talk about it, obviously, but 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 I'm not going to do it. So I don't know. I'm telling my son, do whatever you need to do with Vince McMahon to main event WrestleMania. Yeah. That's what I'm. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Not that you're vicariously <laughs> trying to live through him or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, son, go put your health on the line just so I can feel good about myself. What a father of the year over here. Hey, hey, I can work a prom a program better than the Miz's now. <laughs> okay. No well, that that didn't take much. <laughs> What did uh, what did uh, uh, what did Miz say? No, it wasn't Mrs. Dad. What was it? Oh yeah, yeah. And then Shane said yeah. Shane said he was like a potato with arms and legs or something like that. What a line! That was a great line. That was perfect. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, all right. So uh, as with Shamrock versus Brony, there were a couple fighters that popped on their post-fight drug test after this event. Adam Smith, who lost to Dewey mm. Cooper, who I said looked pretty swole, tested positive mm. for pot, cocaine. And a couple of steroids. So based Jeez. on his look, not surprised at all. Definitely did not pass the eye test, at least for me. Uh, and like I said, I thought he looked like he was on steroids when I saw him in the cage. When you grow up watching pro wrestling and you you see what guys look like when they're swollen, like they're they're muscular and it's they're not cut, you can you know it, it's pretty obvious usually. Or I don't say it's pretty obvious, but you can usually pick them out. So. Yeah, you know when they when they tear a quad yeah. walking to the ring, <laughs> yeah, multiple backing up to the turnbuckle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then Bill Mahood, surprisingly, uh, he also tested positive. Uh, he actually tested positive for the anabolic steroid drost drostanolone. 
I don't know how to say that. <laughs> I shouldn't have written it in here if I didn't know how to say it. Uh, he tested positive for an anabolic steroid. So, uh, which uh, inter- interesting. I mean, not. A, I mean, he's in good shape, but not a guy that I looked at and thought, "Ooh, he's you know he's on something." So, kind of interesting there. Uh, but it's really, you know, kind of as we look back at the event, just this commentary stood out to me in, in a bad way. No disrespect uh, to Mr. Weber, but he just, you know, he pales in comparison to guys like Mar Ranallo and even Mike Goldberg. When it comes to MMA, I, I just not a fan. And and he said a few things that I just didn't like. I, I didn't think that they flowed with MMA and what the sport's about. And, you know, he was a local. I looked him up and he's a. He was a local Fox Sports guy. He, he hosted a, a, a show with uh, Frank Shamrock, a local uh, Bay Area Sportsnet show. And, and I just, you know, I, I get that, but just not somebody I was a huge fan of as a, as a broadcaster. Was this like the Matt Vaskersian of MMA or what? Sure. I know I, I, he does baseball. I know him from, like, the video games and stuff. I know everybody loves to make fun of Joe Buck. I don't get that. I actually like Joe Buck, so yeah. I, I don't really get that. But – I. Yeah, it's it just kinda... he did say he did say at one point that some of the people in the crowd were styling. Yeah, profile, I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. that. <laughs> so that was the one thing he said that was okay. But yeah, he was awful. Yeah, just not <laughs> not not a huge fan. Uh, and if you look him up, there's no like I looked him up on LinkedIn. Like there's no mention of him doing MMA. So I don't think he's proud of it either. So, uh, but yeah, he he said a couple things that I mean I just literally shake sh- or shook my head. Like I, I just yeah. So didn't know the sport very well. Frank Shamrock, I love the guy, but but just was not a fan of what he said about Josh Thompson. Very, very unprofessional. You know, I understand trying to build up feuds, but these two are so far away in weight class. I mean, Josh is walking around 180 pounds. You know, he cuts down to 155 from walking around at 180 pounds. Frank, you know, he like he made, you know, he would fight at 185 pounds, but that means he was cutting down from probably 200 or something along those lines. Like these guys could i guess meet in the middle but this was not going to be a fight that we were going to see even jo- even though josh was said in interviews that he would fight frank so i and then but what what would be in it for frank to beat josh i mean if you beat a little you know a guy who's much smaller than you what you're you're supposed to do that and if you lose obviously you lose face so i just this is like for me this is like feuding with a referee in pro wrestling like you're not going to see a match so why why use airtime valuable airtime to air out your grievances and especially with an obviously planned line like the you know first gay uh you know first gay fighter i mean just just not a a fan of how frank handled that situation and then even weirder as the fight goes on all he all he has to say about josh is good stuff as a fighter Mm -hmm. like i I, it just it was just so out of left field and you know to like i said you know frank to his credit did say some really good things about josh's performance in the cage and you know, he did try to tee Kung up a couple times, like I said. I mean, he tried to he tried to make this thing entertaining, but but I just just not a fan of the commentary all the way around. I, I it was just not my cup of tea at all. I don't know if Frank just checked out because it was at the Playboy Mansion and he was just in a really good mood with the open bar and yeah. the company, but I mean, if he said that today, oh I man, mean, cancel culture, he'd yeah. be done. Oh, he'd yeah. be done. He would be done. So, but let's delve into the feud a bit more. A few days after the event, Thompson gives an interview where he s- discusses the background of his beef with Frank. And in the interview, basically Josh said that Frank had left AKA and he was mad that the fighters didn't go with him. He had a f- kind of a falling out, which Frank talked about in our, or I'm sorry, Javier actually talked about 
Javier Mendez, the founder of AK, talked about in our interview with him, where it's just kind of a wasn't like a bad blood thing, but it was just kind of a money thing. And um, you know, in in Frank had also said in, uh, or I'm sorry, Josh had also said that the videos that Frank had made about Phil Phil Baroni, who was a teammate of Josh's, had bothered him. And you know, after Frank intimated that Josh was gay, uh, the punk actually said he had an agent looking into a potential lawsuit, which I don't think ever happened, thankfully, but. Clearly, it had gotten ugly, and this actually, this would not be the end of it, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, let me just go back to the comment. I mean, it was weird was the way Shamrock said it. It was just like he was just saying anything, like, oh, and, you know, Josh Thompson backs up into the cage or something. Like, it was just so casual, um, and it was almost like he was, like, trying to compliment him. So, either Frank is either the master of sarcasm or... You know, he was really trying to make people believe something about Thompson, but it wasn't the way he delivered it was just so casual. He just dropped it in. Um, I think this is an example where you've got too much of uh, a sense of closeness between a fighter and a promoter. I, you know, you, you need to have some checks and balances. And Frank clearly felt extraordinarily comfortable to say whatever he wanted. Um, you know, it's during a live show. It's not even like during an interview or off the cuff sort of thing. Um, in another world, he would have been reprimanded for that comment. Uh, you know, Chamak was goofy sort of the entire night. But, you know, when you think about like Liz Carmouche when she fought Ronda Rousey, of course, that was part of the story. Um, her being sort of the first openly gay uh, fighter in the UFC in the buildup. But, you know, once they're in the cage, you're just calling the fight. You know, I don't, that was not a thing at all. And so um, I just thought that was really, really odd and interesting. And I don't know why Frank said that and sort of like that was the end of it. It's just weird to me. Yeah, it, it was definitely not something that um, that I think would happen today, I don't think. And, and, and thankfully, you know, and this is one of those things where, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't believe in it. And I think there's way too much hair trigger reaction to what people say and, you know, trigger whatever. And I'm not a fan of that at all. At the same time, I do believe that as an employee of an employer, that there should be consequences to, to your words and your actions. And if, you know, if the, uh, the employer has a, a set guideline and you'd violate that, yes, you have freedom of speech, but they also have the freedom to fire you for violating company policy. So, you know, I, I, I was not a fan of it, as I've said multiple times, and just, I wasn't a fan of this show either, to be honest, uh, you know, it just, it seemed like one that was really designed to get some easy wins for their big stars. I mean, it was a lot of essential squash matches, uh, you know, non-title <laughs> fights, catch weight bouts, name fighters, fighting unknown fighters. I mean, just, really seemed to be put together to, to pad the win-loss records. I mean, almost like, uh, you know, AEW does their, their AEW Dark show on Tuesday nights, and it's all squash, squash matches. That's kind of what this felt like. And, you know, the main card was streamed for free on, on Yahoo Sports. Apparently there were 500 million people watching. Uh, so, you know, it's not like anybody had to pay for it necessarily, except for the people that had to be there. And they were probably paying more to be part of the – you know, that the, the MMA fights were probably just kind of part of, you know, hey, we got this gourmet buffet and, you know, all these playmates running around and, you know, the, the poker tournament and all these different things that they had going on. This was just part of that. And and so I, I yeah, just after, especially coming after Shamrock versus Baroni, that was just such an, an exciting event to, to be able to watch. Uh, to me, I just was not a big fan of this event. And 
you know, I'm glad we're done talking about it pretty much. Although we're going to have to do a second one, right? They, yeah, they, they do. They year? do a second, which uh, Joe Riggs actually headlines the second one. I don't know anything about that card, so I don't know how good it is or isn't. So we'll, we'll see. I haven't, obviously we haven't done the research on that one yet, but they are, they are back at the Playboy Mansion for another event. So this will be coming up again at some point. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if this was a step back for Strike Force. It was actually probably just kind of a pause. I don't think anybody saw the show. And so people really didn't know what happened. And then they saw the results of the fights. And it was what it was. But the fact that it was on Yahoo at that time, I mean, you can imagine the, the, the streaming issues that existed back then. Oh, oh man. You can imagine how difficult it was. I mean, now... Uh, watching events is easy but back then it was difficult and it was not not easy so i think it was more sort of um something that it just was what it was and then it was forgotten uh most notable things was you know daniel pewter it was the end of daniel pewter in strike force uh you know Riggs had this great performance uh it was a good knockout shamrock made that inappropriate uh comment about Josh Thompson, which is, you know, essentially he's using it as a slur because, you know, Josh Thompson is not gay. And, and so it's not like he outed Josh Thompson. That's not what we're saying. We're saying like he, he basically did like a playground thing about Josh Thompson on, live, you know, live TV. And uh, so, you know, and that was a thing. And there's no way to, to do anything with that because they're not in the same weight classes. And, um, you know, it wasn't really a game changing card it wasn't really important in the annals of strike force history it was a little bit regrettable but um obviously strike force would overcome all this and do great things down the road so uh yeah not you know it was more of a car accident kind of show it was what it was let's move on yeah i'm glad that we get to go move on i'm glad we don't have to talk about this anymore i did quickly look it up the uh the next um strike force event at the playboy mansion was almost exactly a year later so based on our scheduling and everything um it'll be about two months before we we have to talk about the uh, the playboy mansion again uh but we will be talking about it again uh I, but coming up as i've mentioned uh, we do have a con conversation with joe diesel riggs that's coming up next week you're not going to want to miss that we delve into again uh, his fight with uh, with Nick Diaz at the the hospital after this event. You'll hear Nate Diaz involvement there. Tim Sylvia being there. Frank Mir being there. There's a, there's a lot of names brought up in that. We just talk about Joe's career. We talk about his fight with Eugene Jackson. He shares some very interesting insight, uh, including what it's like to beat up your opponent in front of his son while his son is watching. So that was. We, we delve into some interesting points. It was it was a good conversation. So that'll be coming up next week. Uh, after that. We're going to be talking about four man, four men enter, one man survives. This was a one man, I'm sorry, one man. This was a one night tournament. Uh, very interesting uh, event. Um, some names on there. Uh, Alistair Overeer, uh, Overeem uh, d uh, takes on Paul Buentello. Kung Lee is back. George Santiago, uh, George Santiago is on that card. Trevor Prangley, Valenico Vitale is back as well. Bobby Southworth is on that card. Uh, Luke Stewart's on that. Anthony Figueroa is back. Dennis Hallman, speaking of, Speaking of uh, short shorts, speaking of, of, of speedos, I, do you remember that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, you know, when you say that, I think of that UFC guy who did that. Yeah, that, that's Dennis Hallman. He wore the train. Same guy. Okay. He wore the, the, the blue speedos, essentially, with training mask, who was his train or was was his sponsor on the crotch area. And Dana White was I actually just just in research for this 
uh, this show, not this episode, but for the podcast, somehow I came across Dana at the post-fight event from that, and he was livid about Hallman wearing those shorts. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people thought it was funny, but uh, but but Dana was not one of them. He was very upset about that. Uh, but yeah, Dennis Hallman actually fought in, in Strike Force, and so he's he's on the card that we're going to be talking talking about coming up. Uh, so we're excited about that. We're going to be talking with gorgeous George Garcia from MMA Junkie Radio. I, I appeared on their show, and now George is going to appear on our show. Though, so that's going to be coming up uh, as well. Uh, we're looking to we're looking to get our next interview locked down uh, after that, and and I'm working on that. So I don't want to say the name yet because it's not not for sure yet. Uh, but uh, but I do have uh, I do have a, a just tell him just tell no, him it's Bob no, it's not it's Bob, Bob Sapp. Sapp. I don't think <laughs> I don't even know how to reach Bob Sapp. Now he does much to my chagrin. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> much what? to my chagrin, he did headline a Strike Force event. And it's actually oh. one of the next events that are gonna be coming up. It's called Strike Force at the Dome. I don't have anybody specific for that card yet. Um, to as far as coming on on you know on our show to talk about that event. Uh, and actually, there are not a whole lot of people that would be a possibility f- to come on. So I don't know how that's going to go. Uh, I don't Maybe know I'll that, reach out to him. Yeah, if you've got a contact, you feel free. <laughs> you feel free to do that. But as of right now, I don't know who we're going to invite to talk, to talk about that. I know the event after that is, is Shamrock versus Lee. And Kung Lee has agreed to come on the podcast. And so I'm really excited about that. That's going to be a great conversation, I'm sure. Uh, to talk about his title-winning fight over Frank Shamrock, and so that's so we've got some cool stuff coming up as always. Uh, but make sure that you follow us on social media. You can check us out on Twitter and on Instagram at Inside the Hexagon Pod. Uh, technically on Twitter, I guess it's at Hexagon Pod. But if you look up Inside the Hexagon Pod, it comes up. Uh, you can so you can tweet us there. You can make sure you throw us a follow. Uh, you can also reach me at Phil at InsideTheHexagon.com. And if you want to reach Josh, you can just reach out to me, and I'm happy to put you in touch uh, if that is your desire. Uh, but we've got some really cool stuff. Coming Coming up, make sure that you are rating and reviewing the show as well. We got a few more uh, five-star ratings over the last couple of weeks, which I was excited to see. So uh, please help us with that and continue to rate and review the show. And again, give us your feedback. We want to hear from you. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Josh, thanks for taking the time to be on the show with us. I appreciate it, man. Oh, this was uh, my pleasure. And um, again, you always do amazing research, which makes uh, my job really easy. So thanks again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, again, we're going to ride off in the sunset. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for, so, so, excuse me, thank you for supporting. <laughs> but in the meantime, stay safe and stay healthy, and we will see you soon. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. 
They were able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 